Karen Filipkowski, the Chief Librarian at the Public Library here in Barry's Bay. And with me is Mark Wormke, a local boy who has made good and now teaches high school in Ottawa. But we're also members of the Apiongo Readers Theatre, a local group of three dozen people who operate out of our five rural public libraries in Barry's Bay, Killaloo, Madawaska, Maynooth and Whitney. All of us in our own way are supporting the work of the station keepers. Here in this beautiful old station built 125 years ago in 1894 as part of the Ottawa, Armprior and Perry Sound Railway. At one time it was the busiest railway in Canada. We're all dedicated to bringing to life not only the poetry and prose of classical literature from around the world, but as many of you already know, we are also very keen on bringing you to the cut and thrust of our very unique local history here along the Apiango line. Tonight we have something very special for you, an evening of short stories, all read by Mark Wormke and all written by Stephen Leacock. And not just any stories, but stories about fishing. Or put another way, seven very fishy tales. For there is always something very fishy in how Mr. Leacock tells his stories. For those of you who may not know, Stephen Leacock was, for most of the first half of the 20th century, more famous than Mark Twain. Quite an accomplishment when you come to think of it. Who doesn't know Mark Twain? That great American humorist, novelist, lecturer, traveler, short storyteller of tall tales involving those much-loved characters he created, Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer. But how many of you can name just one of Stephen Leacock's characters, or for that matter, one of his books? Perhaps you have heard of his literary lapses, or sunshine sketches, or winnowed wisdom. Perhaps not. For it is part of our self-deprecating Canadian character not to cheer too loudly, remember too well, or honour too much our dearly departed authors, especially if they happen to be world-famous humorists. But enough about being Canadian. Tonight we are here to discover once again why the rest of the world thinks so highly of our very own man of letters. So let us begin with one of those timeless topics that Leacock found so full of infinite jest, fishing, or more properly, the men and women who make of it a sport, a pastime, a lifelong passion. Listen carefully and see if you can figure out why a story written over a hundred years ago still sounds like it could have been written this very weekend about some good people we all know right here in Barry's Bay or next door up there in Algonquin Park. When fellers go fishing. If I were writing this discussion as a scientific essay, I should put as the title, The Reaction of Fishing Upon the Psychology of the Individual. That wouldn't guarantee that no one would read it. But if I label it as above, when fellers go fishing, that enlists the sympathy of everybody. At least that is of everybody who matters, all the people who go fishing. From time immemorial, fishing has had this particular sympathetic claim. King James spoke of fishing as the apostle's own calling. And long before King James, in the earliest twilight of our literature, in all old tales and legend, a fisherman was supposed to be a kindly fellow, poor but likable, whereas a merchant was a cheat, and a lawyer, when he presently appeared, stood for a crook. It was always a poor fisherman who found an emerald in the belly of a fish, 
a poor fisherman to whom a saint appeared, or a poor fisherman who saved a little drowning maiden who turned out to be a princess. Think what a thrill of interest Charles Kingsley gives us in his famous poem that begins, Three fishers went sailing out into the west. But suppose he had said, three lawyers took the train to the east. Not the same at all. Even now, when the writer of a crime story wants to indicate that one of the characters concerned must be all right at heart, he describes him as passionately fond of angling. It is to be observed that angling is the name given to fishing by people who can't fish. Now here is why fishing has this particular appeal. In the faraway past, fishing played a far larger part in human life, inconceivably larger than it does now. It outdates agriculture by centuries. All of the people from whom we descend live by and on the waters. In each of us is buried 30 generations down the soul of a bygone fisherman. And our city office men, when you take them away from their desks and get them out with the sound of the waves and the song of the wind in their ears, turn back again into fishermen. I've never been out fishing before, says such a one, as the motorboat bears him out on the lake, the tackle and gear all stowed and ready for the day's work. What? Never before? Yet look at the queer, faraway look that comes into his eye, turning to the horizon, seeking back unconsciously the lost memories of a thousand years ago. What? Never before? Why have you forgotten how you and I went fishing off the coast that we now call Norway in the days of Hengist and Horsa? That's what you're listening for, my dear sir, the sound of the waves beating on the broken shoals among which our great boat with its single sail is driving. Sounds like these still echo in the ears of infant children before the age of speech and conscious memory. The child that stirs and murmurs in its sleep is hearing the waves of the North Sea and calling you to pull hard on the steering oar to keep the boat from the breakers. Mere fancy this? Imagination? Not at all. Plain scientific fact. Ask any biologist and he'll tell you that it's plain truth. Only he'll use such a maze of scientific terms that he'll make all, take all the simple meaning out of it. He'll admit that the ichthyological impulse is part of our Mendelian heritage. Then he will pause and correct his statements by saying that perhaps piscatorial urge would be a better term than ichthyological impulse. So you can have your choice. What he really means is that every man, deep down, is a fisherman. So when people go out fishing, or are taken out fishing, this piscatorial urge gets hold of them. You know what is meant by atavism, by throwing back to the characters of faraway ancestors? Well, that is what they get. The transformation is best seen, and this is in accordance with scientific law, is best seen in the case of beginners, of people doing a thing for the first time with only instinct to guide them. Observe this man whom you've asked out for a day's fishing. What did you say he was by profession? A stockbroker. Oh, yes. Well, he's looking through his clothes cupboard for a suit to wear out fishing. Don't interrupt him. Don't disturb him. He knows better than you what he wants. He's looking for that old suit of tanned leather that he wore in the North Sea a thousand years ago. Hush, let him look. There, he's found it. I admit what you see or think you see is the old pair of ginger brown pants that the tailor cut too big by accident, and that his wife has tried to throw away a dozen times already. But what he sees is a suit of seal hide that he wore when his name was Leif Helslinger, and he smashed through the foam off the Faroe Islands. That is why when you take men out fishing, they turn up in such queer costumes. 
Here's one with a red coat on and a red knotted band around his waist. Old junk from his snowshoeing days, very likely. But to him, it's the stuff he wore as a Carthaginian fisherman off the coast of Tunis in the days of Hannibal. See the fellow there with huge rubber boots? A plumber left them in his cellar. He wears those, though he doesn't know it, so that an octopus can't bite him. This is the deep, hidden reason why a party of fishermen always looks so queer. The stores try to make these things, but they can't. Patent rubber jackets and Norfolk coats with side flap pockets and pancake waterproof hats. Oh, no. You can spend a couple of hundred dollars on this stuff, and all you look like is an American millionaire who has rented a Scottish salmon stream. You've seen him in pictures a hundred times. Beside him, by the way, is a Scottish ghillie, the real thing, with clothes that go back to the Picts and Scots of the Emperor Hadrian's time. As with the transformation of clothes, so with the transformation of character. It seems to me that men out fishing take on, as it were, a new character, or at least resurrect one buried long ago and lost under the surface of daily life. I spoke a moment ago of the transformation of my friends when out fishing, bass fishing, for example, in a motorboat on one of our lakes, where they turned back into Saxons of the North Sea. But take the same men out fishing on a river stream, out in the bush, nicely off the beaten path of highways and civilized meals, and they'll turn back further still. They'll go clear back to the ancient Britons in the woods, suddenly become ingenious, subtle, full of woodcraft. When you see such a man go into the bush, you realize that it is a pity he ever came out of it. Watch him squatting beside the fire that he is managing to make burn out of wet twigs in a drizzling rain. The ground is sodden. Does he know it? The smoke puffs in his eyes. Does he feel it? No, of course not. This man is clean back to the days of Boadicea. After three days in the bush, he'll tan as dark as an Iberian salt. He'll be stained with woad from his cigarettes, and he'll eat a pound and a half of meat at a sitting, and be out at sunrise, fishing in the foam beneath a fall. Stand it? Why, he can stand anything. Yet this is the same man that last week was breakfasting on half a grapefruit with bromo seltzer, who sent the waiter to tell the head waiter to tell the management of the hotel that the room was chilly, and who could quarrel and get angry over a trifle or a misstatement, a contradiction that outfishing he wouldn't hear and wouldn't notice if he did. Quarrels? Arguments? No, that's another thing about fishing. There's no room, no time for that. A little genial discussion, if you will, as to whether a gut leader on a bass line is any good or no damn good. That's all right. That's science. But to think of quarreling over the things men argue about in ordinary life, such as whether Sir Johnny MacDonald died in 1891 or 1892, whether John L. Sullivan was born in Ireland, and whether the Scott Act came first or local option. Oh, no. A man fishing is too broad-minded to dispute over these things. What does that matter? And anyway, you can't hear what the other fellow is saying for the noise of the waterfall. Look, Ed's got another over there. Atta boy, Ed! Only darn it, he can't hear. But remember, just one last caution. After you've been out with a bunch of darn good fellows for four days on the Magnetowan, or in the bush country north, north of Lake Nipigon, don't... No, very particularly don't ask that group of men to come and dine all together at your club in the city on their return. If you do, you'll find that the magic has all gone. 
There they are, not a bunch, but a group, back in their little tuxedo jackets, shaved each as pink as a dressed hog, precise, formal, and eating like sick hens pecking damaged grain. The magic is all gone. The enchantment has vanished, as enchantment always does, vanished and gone overnight. The North Sea and the Carthaginians and the Britons squatting beside the smoky fire, oh no, those are not these men. Maid, will you tell the steward we've been waiting five minutes already for our coffee? Starting to get a hankering to head up into Algonquin Park and maybe cast a lure into Lake Albiongo? Or, as I suspect, Leacock might already have you on the run, and you're maybe, shall we say, already thinking twice about going fishing at all this summer. Fear not, our noble bard is not trying to restrain you from your chosen avocation. If anything, he thinks it might do you some good, so long as you stay away from those wacky friends we all have who are just a tad too passionate about getting you back into the bush. Take a listen and see if you recognize anyone you know. Back to the bush. I have a friend called Billy who has the bush mania. By trade, he is a doctor, but I don't think he needs to sleep out of doors. In ordinary things, his mind appears sound. Over the tops of his gold-rimmed spectacles, as he bends forward to speak to you, there gleams nothing but amiability and kindliness. Like all the rest of us, he is, or was until he forgot it all, an extremely well-educated man. I'm aware of no criminal strain in his blood, yet Billy, in reality, hopelessly is unbalanced. He has the mania of the open woods. Worse than that, he is haunted with the desire to drag his friends with him into the depths of the bush. Whenever we meet, he starts to talk about it. Not long ago, I met him at the club. I wish, he said, you'd let me take you clear away up to the Gatineau. Yes, I wish you wouldn't, I murmured to myself, but I humored him and said, how do we go, Billy, in a motor car or by train? No, we paddle. And is it upstream all the way? Oh, yes, Billy said enthusiastically. And how many days do we paddle all day to get up? Six. Couldn't we do it in less? Yes, Billy answered, feeling that I was entered into the spirit of the thing. If we start each morning just before daylight and paddle hard till moonlight, we could do it in five days and a half. Glorious! And are there portages? Lots of them. And at each of these do I carry a 200-pound pack filled with stuff up a hill on my back? Yes. And will there be a guide, a genuine-looking guide? Yes. And can I sleep next to him? Oh, yes, if you really want to. And when we get to the top, what is there? Well, we go over the height of land. Oh, we do, do we? And is the height of land all rock and about 300 yards uphill? And do I carry a barrel of flour up it? And does it roll down and crush me on the other side? Look here, Billy, this trip is a great thing, but it's too luxurious for me. If you will have me paddled up the river in a large iron canoe with an awning, carried over the portages in a sedan chair, taken across the height of land in a palanquin or a howdah, and lowered down the other side in a derrick, I'll go. Short of that, the thing would be too fattening. Billy was discouraged and left me, but he has since returned repeatedly to the attack. He offers to take me to the headwaters of the Batiscan. I am content at the foot. He wants us to go to the sources of the Attawapiskat. I don't. 
He says I ought to see the grand shoots of the Kewakesis. Why should I? I've made Billy a counter-proposition that we strike through the Adirondacks in the train to New York, from there portage to Atlantic City, then to Washington carrying our own grub in the dining car, camp there a few days at the Willard Hotel, and then back. I to return by train, and Billy on foot with all the outfit. The thing is still unsettled. Billy, of course, is only one of thousands that have got this mania, and the autumn is the time when it rages at its worst. Every day there move northward trains packed full of lawyers, bankers, and brokers headed for the bush. They are dressed up like pirates. They wear slouch hats, flannel shirts, and leather breeches and belts. They could afford much better clothes than these, but they won't use them. I don't know where they get these clothes. I think the railroad lends them out. They have guns between their big knees and big knives at their hips. They smoke the worst tobacco they can find, and they carry 10 gallons of alcohol per men in the baggage car. In the intervals of telling lies to one another, they read the railroad pamphlets about hunting. This kind of literature is deliberately and fiendishly contrived to infuriate their mania. I know all about these pamphlets because I write them. I once, for instance, wrote up from imagination a little place called Dog Lake at the end of a branch line. The place had failed as a settlement, and the railroad had decided to turn it into a hunting resort. I did the turning. I think I did it rather well, rechristening the lake and stocking the place with suitable varieties of game. The pamphlet ran like this. The limpid waters of Lake Owatawetness the name, according to old legends of the place, signifies the mirror of the, of the Almighty, abound with every known variety of fish. Near to its surface, so close that the angler may reach out his hand and stroke them, schools of pike, pickerel, mackerel, doggerel, and chickerel jostle one another in the water. They rise instantaneously to the bait and swim gratefully ashore, holding it in their mouths. In the middle depths of the waters of the lake, the sardine, the lobster, the kippered herring, the anchovy, and other tinned varieties of fish disport themselves with evident gratification, while even lower in the pellucid depths, the dogfish, the hogfish, the logfish, and the swordfish whirl about in never-ending circles. Nor is Lake Owatawetness merely an angler's paradise. Vast forests of primeval pines slope to the very shores of the lake, to which descend great droves of bears, brown, green, and bear-colored ones, while as the shades of evening fall, the air is loud with the lowing of moose, caribou, antelope, cantaloupe, musk-oxes, muskrats, and other gramnivorous mammalia of the forest. These enormous quadrumana generally move off at about 10.30 p.m., from which hour until 11.45, the whole shore is reserved for bison and buffalo. After midnight, hunters who so desire it can be chased through the woods for any distance and at any speed they select by jaguars, panthers, cougars, tigers, and jackals, whose ferocity is reputed to be such that they will tear the breeches off the man with their teeth in their eagerness to sink their fangs into his palpitating flesh. Hunters, attention, do not miss such attractions as these. I've seen men, quite reputable, well-shaved men, reading that pamphlet of mine in the rotundas of hotels, with their eyes blazing with excitement. I think it's the jaguar attraction that hits them the hardest, because I notice they rub themselves sympathetically with their hands while they read. Of course, you can imagine the effect of this sort of literature on the brains of men fresh from their offices and dressed out as pirates. They just go crazy and stay crazy.
Just watch them when they get into the bush. Notice that well-to-do stockbroker crawling about on his stomach in the underbrush with his spectacles shining like gig lamps. What is he doing? He's after a caribou that isn't there. He's stalking it with his stomach. Of course, away down in his heart, he knows that the caribou isn't there and never was, but that man read my pamphlet and went crazy. He can't help it. He's got to stalk something. Mark him as he crawls along. See him crawl through a thimbleberry bush very quietly so that the caribou won't hear the noise of the prickles going into him. Then through a bee's nest gently and slowly so that the caribou will not take fright when the bees are stinging him. Sheer woodcraft. Yes, mark him. Mark him any way you like. Go up behind him and paint a blue cross on the seat of his pants as he crawls. He'll never notice. He thinks he's a hunting dog. Yet this is the man who laughs at his little son of ten for crawling around under the dining room table with a mat over his shoulders pretending to be a bear. Now see these other men in the camp. Someone has told them, I think I first started the idea in my pamphlet, that the thing is to sleep on a pile of hemlock branches. I think I told them to listen to the wind soughing. You know the word I mean. Soughing and crooning in the giant pines. So there they are doubled out on a couch of green spikes that would have killed St. Sebastian. They stare up at the sky with bloodshot, restless eyes, waiting for the crooning to begin, and there isn't a sow in sight. Here's another man with a six days growth of beard, frying a piece on a stick over a little fire. Now what does he think he is? The chef of the Waldorf Astoria? Yes, he does. And what's more, he thinks that that miserable bit of bacon cut with a tobacco knife from a chunk of meat that lay six days in the rain is fit to eat. What more? He'll eat it. So will the rest. They're all crazy together. There's another man, the Lord help him, who thinks he has the knack of being a carpenter. He is hammering up shelves to a tree. Till the shelves fall down, he thinks he is a wizard. Yet this is the same man who swore at his wife for asking him to put up a shelf in the back kitchen. How the blazes, he asked. Could he nail the damn thing up? Did she think he was a plumber? After all, never mind. Provided they are happy up there, let them stay. Personally, I wouldn't mind if they didn't come back and lie about it. They get back to the city dead fagged for want of sleep, sogged with alcohol, bitten brown by bush flies, trampled on by the moose and chased through the brush by bears and skunks, and they have the nerve to say that they liked it. Sometimes I think they do. Men are animals anyway. They like to get out into the wood and growl around at night and feel something bite them. Only why haven't they the imagination to be able to do the same thing with less fuss? Why not take off their coats and collars in the office and crawl around on the floor and growl at one another there? It would be just as good. Now, not all fishing stories are about knuckle-dragging Neanderthals who like roughing it in the bush. No, some people have a more rarefied taste when it comes to fishing. They appreciate the finer things in life, and so too when it comes to fishing. They execute their sport with more of a caviar flavor. It's not for nothing they took up the champagne of sports during those dastardly days of prohibition. The old, old story of how five men went fishing. This is a plain account of a fishing party. It's not a story. There is no plot. Nothing happens in it, and nobody is hurt. The only point of this narrative is its peculiar truth. It not only tells what happened to us, the five people concerned in it, 
But what has happened and is happening to all the other fishing parties that the season of the year, from Halifax to Idaho, go gliding out on the unruffled surface of our Canadian and American lakes in the still cool of early summer mornings. We decided to go in the early morning because there is a popular belief that the early morning is the right time for bass fishing. The bass is said to bite in the early morning. Perhaps it does. In fact, the thing is almost capable of scientific proof. The bass does not bite between 8 and 12. It does not bite between 12 and 6 in the afternoon, nor does it bite between 6 o'clock and midnight. All these things are known fact. The inference is that the bass bites furiously at about daybreak. At any rate, our party were unanimous about starting early. Better make an early start, said the colonel when the idea of the party was suggested. Oh yes, said George Popley, the bank manager. We want to get right out on the shoal while the fish are biting. When he said this, all our eyes glistened. Everybody's do. There's a thrill in those words to get right out on the shoal at daybreak when the fish are biting. It's an idea that goes to any man's brain. If you listen to the men talking in a Pullman car or hotel corridor, or better still at the little tables in a first-class bar, you will not listen long before you hear one say, well, we got out early, just after sunrise, right on the shoal. And presently, even if you can't hear him, you will see him reach out his two hands and hold them about two feet apart for the other men to admire. He's measuring the fish. No, not the fish they caught. This is the big one that they lost. But they had him right up to the top of the water. Oh yes, he was right up to the top of the water all right. The number of huge fish that have been heaved up to the top of the water in our lakes is almost incredible. Or at least it used to be when we still had bar rooms and little tables for serving that vile stuff, scotch whiskey, and such foul things as gin rickies and John Collins's. It makes one sick to think of it, doesn't it? But there was good fishing in the bars all winter. But as I say, we decided to go early in the morning. Charlie Jones, the railroad man, said he had remembered how, when he was a boy up in Wisconsin, they used to get out at five in the morning. Not get up at five, but be on the shoal at five. It appears that there is a shoal somewhere in Wisconsin where the bass lie in thousands. Kernan, the lawyer, said that when he was a boy, this was on Lake Rosso, that they used to get out at four. It seems that there is a shoal in Lake Rosso where you can haul up the bass as fast as you can drop your line. The shoal is hard to find, very hard. Kernan can find it, but it is doubtful, so I gather, if any other living man can. The Wisconsin shoal, too, is very difficult to find. Once you find it, you're all right, but it's hard to find. Charlie Jones can find it. If you were in, right, in Wisconsin right now, he'd take you straight to it. But probably no person alive could reach that shoal other than he. In the same way, Colonel Morse knows of a shoal in Lake Simcoe where he used to fish years and years ago, and which I understand he can still find. I've mentioned that Kernan is a lawyer and Jones a railroad man and Popley a banker, but I needn't have. Any reader would take it for granted. In any fishing party, there is always a lawyer. You can tell him at sight. He's the one of the party that has a landing net and a steel rod in sections with a wheel that is used to wind the fish to the top of the water. And there is always a banker. You can tell him by his good clothes. Popley in the bank wears his banking suit. When he goes fishing, he wears his fishing suit. It is the much better of the two because his banking suit has ink marks on it and his fishing suit has no fish marks on it. 
As for the railroad man, quite so. The reader knows it well as I do. You can tell him because he carries a pole that he cut in the bush himself, with a ten-cent line wrapped around the end of it. Jones says he can catch as many fish with this kind of line as Kernan can with his patent rod and reel. So he can, too. Just the same number. But Kernan says that with his patent apparatus, if you get a fish on, you can play him. Jones says to Hades with playing him, give him a fish on his line and he'll haul him in, all right. Kernan says he'd lose him, but Jones says he wouldn't. In fact, he guarantees to haul the fish in. Kernan says that more than once in Lake Rosso, he has played a fish for over half an hour. I forget now why they stopped. I think the fish quit playing. I've heard Kernan and Jones argue this question of their two rods as to which rod can best pull on the fish for over half an hour. Others may have heard the same question debated. I know no way by which it could be settled. Our arrangement to go fishing was made at the little golf club of our summer town on the veranda where we sit in the evening. Oh, it's just a little place, nothing pretentious. The links are not much good for golf. In fact, we don't play much golf there so far as golf goes. And of course, we don't serve meals at the club. It's not like that. And no, we've nothing to drink there because of prohibition. But we go and sit there. It's a good place to sit. And after all, what else can you do in the present state of the law? So it was there that we arranged the fishing party. The thing somehow seemed to fall into the mood of each of us. Jones said he had been hoping that some of the boys would get up a fishing party. It was apparently the one kind of pleasure that he really cared for. For myself, I was delighted to get in with a crowd of regular fishermen like these four, especially since I hadn't been out fishing for nearly 10 years. Though fishing is a thing I am passionately fond of. I know no pleasure in life like the sensation of getting a four-pound bass on the hook and hauling him up to the top of the water to weigh him. But as I say, I hadn't been out for 10 years. Oh yes, I live right beside the water every summer, and yes, certainly, I am saying so, I am passionately fond of fishing, but still somehow I hadn't been out. Every fisherman knows just how that happens. The years have a way of slipping by. Yet I must say I was surprised to find that so keen a sport as Jones hadn't been out, so it presently appeared, for eight years. I had imagined he practically lived on the water. And Colonel Morrison Kernan, I was amazed to find, hadn't been out in 12 years, not since the day, so it came out in conversation, when they went out together in Lake Rosso and Kernan landed a perfect monster, a regular corker, five pounds and a half, they said. Or no, I don't think he landed him. No, I remember he didn't land him. He caught him and he could have landed him. He should have landed him, but he didn't land him. That was it. Yes, I remember Kernan and Morris had a slight discussion about it. Oh, perfectly amicable as to whether Morris had fumbled with the net or whether Kernan, the whole argument was perfectly friendly, had made an ass of himself by not striking soon enough. Of course, the whole thing was so long ago that both of them could look back on it without any bitterness or ill nature. In fact, it amused them. Kernan said it was the most laughable thing he ever saw in his life to see poor old Jack, that's Morse's name, shoving away with the landing net wrong side up. And Morse said he'd never forget seeing poor old Kernan yanking his line first this way and then that and not knowing where to try to haul it. It made him laugh to look back at it. They might have gone on laughing for quite a time, but Charlie Jones interrupted by saying that in his opinion, a landing net is a piece of darn foolishness. Here Popley agrees with him. Kernan objects that if you don't use a net, you'll lose your fish at the side of the boat. Jones says no. Give him a hook well through the fish and a stout line in his hand, and that fish has got to come in. Popley says so too. 
He says, let him have his hook fast to the fish's head with a short stout line and put him Popley at the other end of that line and that fish will come in. It's got to. Otherwise, Popley will know why. That's the alternative. Either the fish must come in or Popley must know why. There's no escape from the logic of it. But perhaps some of my listeners have heard the thing discussed before. So as I say, we decided to go the next morning and to make an early start. All of the boys were at one about that. When I say boys, I use the word it is used in fishing to mean people from, say, 45 to 65. There is something about fishing that keeps men young. If a fellow gets out for a good morning's fishing, forgetting all business worries once in a while, say once in every 10 years, it keeps him fresh. We agreed to go on a launch, a large launch, to be exact, the largest in town. We could have gone in rowboats, but a rowboat is a poor thing to fish from. Kernan said that in a rowboat, it is impossible properly to play your fish. The side of the boat is so low that the fish is apt to leap over the side into the boat when only half played. Popley said that there is no comfort in a rowboat. In a launch, a man can reach out his feet and take it easy. Charlie Jones said that in a launch, a man could rest his back against something. And Moore said that in a launch, a man could rest his neck. Young, inexperienced boys, in the small sense of the word, never think of these things. So they go out, and after a few hours, their necks get tired. Whereas a group of expert fishers in a launch can rest their backs and necks and even fall asleep during the pauses when the fish stop biting. Anyway, all the boys agreed that the great advantage of a launch would be that we could get a man to take us. By that means, the man could see to getting the worms, and the man would be sure to have spare lines, and the man would come along to our different places, we were all beside the water, and pick us up. In fact, the more we thought about the advantage of having a man take us, the better we liked it. As a boy gets old, he likes to have a man around to do the work. Anyway, Frank Rolls, the man we decided to get, not only has the biggest launch in town, but what is more, Frank knows the lake. We called him up at his boathouse over the phone and said we'd give him $5 to take us out first thing in the morning, provided that he knew the shoal. He said he knew it. I don't know, to be quite candid about it, who mentioned whiskey first. In these days, everybody has to be a little careful. I imagine we had all been thinking whiskey for some time before anybody said it. But there is a sort of convention that when men go fishing, they must have whiskey. Each man makes the pretense that the one thing he needs at six o'clock in the morning is cold, raw whiskey. It is spoken of in terms of affection. One man says the first thing you need if you're going fishing is a good snort of whiskey. Another says that a good snifter is the very thing, and the others agree that no man can fish properly without a horn or a bracer or an eye opener. Each man really decides that he himself won't take any, but he feels that in a collective sense, the boys need it. So it was with us. The colonel said he'd bring along a bottle of booze. Popley said, no, let him bring it. Kernan said, let him. And Charlie Jones said, no, he'd bring it. Turned out that the colonel had some very good scotch at his house that he'd like to bring. Oddly enough, Popley had some good scotch in his house too. And queer though it is, each of the boys had quite a quantity of scotch in his own house. When the discussion closed, we knew that each of the five of us was intending to bring a bottle of whiskey. Each of the five of us expected the others to drink one and a quarter bottles in the course of the morning. I suppose we must have talked on that veranda till long after one in the morning. It was probably nearer two than one when we broke up, 
but we agreed that that made no difference. Popley said that for him, three hours of sleep, the right kind of sleep, was far more refreshing than ten. Kernan said that a lawyer learns to snatch his sleep when he can, and Jones said that in railroad work, a man pretty well cuts out sleep. So we had no alarms, whatever, about not being ready by five. Our plan was simplicity itself. Men like ourselves in responsible positions learn to organize things easily. In fact, Popley says it is that faculty that has put us where we are. So the plan simply was that Frank Rolls should come along at five o'clock and blow his whistle in front of our places, and at that signal each man would come down to his wharf with his rod and kit, and so we'd be off to the shoal without a moment's delay. The weather we ruled out. It was decided that even if it rained, that made no difference. Kernan said that the fish bite better in the rain, and everybody agreed that a man with a couple of snorts in him need have no fear of a little rainwater. So we parted, all keen on the enterprise, nor do I think even now that there was anything faulty or imperfect in that party as we planned it. I heard Frank Rolls blowing his infernal whistle opposite my summer cottage at some ghastly hour in the morning. Even without getting out of bed, I could see from the window that it was no day for fishing. No, not raining exactly. I don't mean that, but one of those peculiar days. I don't mean wind, there was no wind, but a sort of feeling in the air that showed anybody who understands bass fishing that it was a perfectly rotten day for going out. The fish, I seemed to know, wouldn't bite. When I was still fretting over the annoyance of the disappointment, I heard Frank Rolls blowing his whistle in front of the other cottages. I counted 30 whistles altogether. Then I fell into a light doze. Not exactly sleep, but a sort of doze. I can find no other word for it. It was clear to me that the other boys had thrown the thing over. There was no use in my trying to go out alone. I stayed where I was, my doze lasting until 10 o'clock. When I walked uptown later in the morning, I couldn't help being struck by the signs in the butcher shops and the restaurants. Fish, fresh fish, fresh lake fish. Where in blazes do they get those fish anyway? Who hasn't told a story about fishing? especially those of us who never caught anything in our lives. There's just something so, oh, I don't know what, darn seductive about reeling in your friend, family member, office mate, the guy down at the gas station. Leacock knew all about that. Give a listen to his next story. The Everlasting Angler. The fishing season is now well underway. For lovers of fishing, this remark is true all the year round. It has seemed to me that it might be of use to set down a few of the more familiar fish stories that are needed by anyone wanting to qualify as an angler. There is no copyright on these stories since Methuselah first told them, and anybody who wishes may learn them by heart and make free use of them. I will begin with the simplest and best known. Everybody who goes fishing has heard it and told it a thousand times. It is called The Story of the Fish That Was Lost. The circumstances under which the story is best told are these. The fisherman returns after his day's outing with his two friends whom he has taken out for the day to his summer cottage. They carry with them their rods, their landing net, and the paraphernalia of their profession. The fisherman carries also on a string a dirty-looking collection of little fish, called by courtesy the catch. None of these little fish really measures more than about seven and a half inches long and four inches around the chest. The fisherman's wife and his wife's sister and the young lady who is staying with them comes running to meet the fishing party, giving cries of admiration as they get a sight of the catch. In reality, they would refuse to buy these fish from a butcher at a cent and a half a pound. 
But they fall into ecstasies and they cry, oh, aren't they beauties? Look at this big one. The big one is about eight inches long. It looked good when they caught it, but it has been shrinking ever since and looks now as if it had died of consumption. It is then that the fisherman says in a voice in which regret is mingled with animation, yes, but say, you ought to have seen the one that we lost. We had hardly let down our lines. It may be interjected here that all fishermen ought to realize that the moment of danger is just when you let down your line. That is the moment when the fish will put up all kinds of games on you, such as rushing at you in a compact mass so fast that you can't take them in, or selecting the largest of their numbers to snatch away one of your rods. We had hardly let down our lines, said the fisherman, when Tom got a perfect monster. That fish would have weighed five pounds, wouldn't it, Tom? Easily, said Tom. Well, Tom started to haul him in, and he yelled to Ted and me to get the landing net, and we had him right up to the side of the boat. Right up to the very side of the boat, repeated Tom and Edward, when the damn line broke, and biff, away he went. Say, he must have been two feet long, really, easily two feet. Did you see him? asked the young lady who was staying with them. This, of course, she has no right to ask. It's not a fair question. Among people who go fishing, it is ruled out. You may ask if a fish pulled hard and how much it weighed, but you must never ask whether anybody saw the fish. <laughs> we could see where he was, said Tom. Then they go up to the house carrying the string or the catch, and all three sang at intervals, say, if we had only landed that big fellow. By the time this anecdote has ripened for winter use, the fish will have been drawn actually into the boat, thus settling all questions of seeing it, and it will there have knocked Edward senseless before leaping over the gunwale. Next comes the story of the extraordinary bait. This is a far more advanced form of fishing story. It is told by fishermen for fishermen. It is a sort of thing they relate to one another when fishing out of a motorboat on a lake, when there has been a slight pause in their activity, and when the fish for a little while, say for three hours, have stopped biting. So the fishermen talk and discuss the ways and means of their craft. Somebody says that grasshoppers make good bait, and somebody else asks whether any of them have ever tried Lake Erie softshell crabs as bait, and then one, whoever is lucky enough to get in first, tells the good old bait story. The queerest bait I ever saw used, he says, shifting his pipe to the other side of his mouth, was one day when I was fishing up in one of the lakes back in Maine. We got to the spot and got all ready when we suddenly discovered that we'd forgotten the bait. At this point, any one of the listeners is entitled by custom to put in the old joke about not forgetting the whiskey. Well, there was no use going ashore. We couldn't have got any worms. It was too early for frogs, and it was 10 miles to row back home. We tried chunks of meat from our lunch, but nothing doing. Well then, just for fun, I cut a white bone button off my pants and put it on the hook. Say, you ought to have seen those fish go for that. We caught, oh, 20, maybe 30 in half an hour. We only quit after we'd cut off all our buttons and our pants were falling off us. <laughs> Say, hold on, boys, I believe I got a nibble. Sit steady. Getting a nibble, of course, will set up an excitement in any fishing party that puts an end to all storytelling. After they got straight again, and the nibble has turned out to be the bottom, as all nibbles are, the moment would be fitting for any one of them to tell the famous story called Beginner's Luck, or the wonderful catch made by the narrator's wife's lady friend. Talking of that big catch that you made with the pants buttons, says another of the anglers, who really means that he is going to talk of something else, reminds me of a queer thing I saw myself. 
We'd gone out fishing for pickerel, dorés they call them up there in the Lake of Two Mountains. We had a couple of big rowboats and we'd taken my wife and the ladies along. I think there were eight of us, perhaps nine. Anyway, it doesn't matter. There was a young lady there from Dayton, Ohio, and she'd never fished before. In fact, she'd never been in a boat before. I don't believe she'd even been near water before. All experienced listeners now know what is coming. They realize the geographical position of Dayton, Ohio, far from the water and shut in everywhere by land. Any prudent fish would make a sneak for shelter if he knew that a young lady from Dayton, Ohio was after him. Well, this girl got an idea that she'd like to fish and we rigged up a line for her, just tied onto a cedar pole that we'd cut in the bush. Do you know, you'd hardly believe that that girl had hardly got her line in the water when she caught a monster. We yelled her to play it or she'd lose it, but she just heaved it up into the air and right into the boat. She caught 17 or 27, I forget which, one after the other, while the rest of us got nothing. And the fun of it was she didn't know anything about fishing. She just threw the fish up into the air and into the boat. Next day, we got her a decent rod with a reel and gave her a lesson or two, and she didn't catch a thing. I may say with truth that I've heard this particular story told not only about a girl from Dayton, Ohio, but about a girl from Kansas, a young lady just out from England, about a girl fresh from Paris, and about another girl, not so fresh, the daughter of a minister. In fact, if I wished to make sure of a real catch, I would select a girl fresh from Paris or New York and cut off some of my buttons, or maybe hers, and start to fish. Then, of course, there is the story of what was found in the fish. The stories, however, do not end with the mere catching of the fish. There is another familiar line of anecdote that comes in when the fish are to be cleaned and cooked. The fishermen have landed on the rocky shore beside the rushing waterfall and are cleaning their fish to cook them for the midday meal. There is an obstinate superstition that fish cooked thus taste better than first-class kippered herring put up in a tin in Aberdeen where they know how. They don't, but it is an honorable fiction and reflects credit on humanity. What is more, all the fishing party compete eagerly for the job of cutting the inside out of the dead fish. In a restaurant, they are content to leave that to anybody sunk low enough and unhappy enough to have to do it, but in the woods, they fight for the job. So it happens that presently one of the workers holds up some filthy specimen of something in his hand and says, look at that. See what I took out of the trout? Unless I mistake it, it's part of a deer's ear. The deer must have stooped over the stream to drink and the trout bit his ear off. At which somebody, whoever gets in first, says, it's amazing what you find in fish. I remember once trolling for trout, the big trout up in Lake Simcoe, and just off Eight Mile Point, we caught a regular whopper. We had no scales, but he weighed easily 20 pounds. We cut him open on the shore afterwards, and say, would you believe it, that fish had inside him a brass buckle, the whole of it, and part of a tennis shoe, and a rain check from a baseball game, and 75 cents in change. It seems hard to account for it, unless perhaps he'd been swimming around some summer hotel. All of these stories, I repeat, may now be properly narrated in the summer fishing season. But of course, as all fishermen know, the true time to tell them is round the winter fire with a glass of something warm within easy reach, at a time when statements cannot be checked, when weights and measures must not be challenged, and when fish grow to their full size and their true beauty. It is such stories as these, whether told in summer or in winter, that the immemorial craft of the angler owes something of its continued charm. 
There's just something about fishing that makes us all, well, so damn gullible. Anything's possible when you go fishing, and so why not come right out and try to convince an otherwise sane person of the one that got away, or about that one place where you're bound to catch a whopper? What harm can there be in telling a little white lie if it brings so much happiness? Listen to this next story and ask yourself, what could be more joyful, honorable, if not, dare I say it, a wash in the redemptive powers of a saintly imagination? The familiar magic of fishing. They sat together in the smoker's end of a Pullman car. They didn't know one another. They were strangers. They weren't talking to one another. Why talk anyway? A man always feels tough and only half alive in the morning in a Pullman car. No need to make conversation with the damn fool. So thought each of them. Outside, the February snow blew against the windows. One saw dim outlines of trees, mostly spruce. Where are we? said one of the men. He said it half by accident because he hadn't spoken for over an hour. Just at the end of the bush country, the other man answered. That's Washago Junction. I recognize it by that piece of bush. You know this country, said the first man. Oh, yes, I come up here fishing all the time. Is that so? Are there fish here? Trout. Trout, eh, said the second man, trying to get his face close to the pane as so as to see the trout. There are trout streams here? He spoke almost reverently as if in church. Oh, yes, lots of them all through here. There are some little lakes further in, but here it's mostly streams. You fish with flies? Well, you can all right where there's a little open space, but of course there's a lot of it where the bush is so thick that you can't get room to cast. I don't mind admitting it. When I can't get room to cast, I'll fish with bait every time, with worms. I'll say so, said the other man. And mind you, there's a whole lot more skill in fishing with worms than people think. You get a place where the stream takes a sharp turn right under a big log in the water. Say, for instance, there was a log over there. He pointed to the other side of the room. Yes, said the listener. He could see the log too. Being, being fishermen, it was clearly there for both of them. Now we'll say it's all thick brush. Yes, assented the other man. In fact, he could feel the brush all around him. He couldn't have moved his arm if he tried. Now you see, you get your line on the bottom. There's apt to be a little bit of hard sand or gravel in a place like this, right in the middle of the channel, and you reach out your line. The speaker sat forward in his chair till he was, or thought he was, on his hands and knees. The other man bent his back a little. The brush wouldn't let him bend too much, and they were both on their hands and knees. You get a good bait on your hook. The bigger, the better. It travels easier and won't catch, and you just let it roll, roll along with the water. There was tense excitement in the little room. Both men followed breathlessly the rolling line. You'll never get snagged, the, the speaker continued, talking low, as trout are easily frightened. If you let the line take its own way, it'll go to the deepest hole, and then, by George, you'll feel Mr. Trout take a snap at it, and out he comes. He landed the trout right on the floor of the room, a perfect beauty with white-edged fins and bright vermilion spots on the deep, firmed, fleshed sides. And with that, the two men went on to discuss telescopic rods and whether the damn thing really work, works or whether one wouldn't rather have a bamboo rod in little sections. You can put all that into your valise. And then they talked of whether you can really make a cast with a rod made in small sections. And the second man showed that you could by making a cast right there in the Pullman car of over 60 feet. And he landed another trout. And the man who didn't know that Washago section said he came from West Virginia. 
So the first man asked him if it wasn't too hot for trout down there, but it seems not, or at least not up in the hills. In fact, the second man took the first man way up into the hills above the Kenosha and cooled him right off, and then fed him on trout with West Virginia ham that he cooked over a brush fire. So that led to talk about how a brown trout can stay in water up to 70 degrees, but after all, is a brown trout any damn good anyway? Would you call it a trout in the real sense? And for that matter, even a rainbow trout isn't in it with the straight speckled brook trout. The color may be all right, but for sport and for eating, there's no comparison. And incidentally, they told one another who they were, and the first man said that he was in hardware, and the second man, it seemed, was in paper boxes. But they really weren't. They were both in trout. And when the porter came to the door and said to one of them, Toronto, sir, you change here, they said goodbye like old friends. And the first man said to the second man that if he ever got as far down as Buck Hannon, he must certainly take him to the Kenosha. And the second man said to the first, if he ever got as far up as Toronto, he must certainly take him up into the Washago country. And each man, when he got home, said to his wife, I met a hell of a nice feller on the train coming down. And that's why fishermen's wives are never jealous of them when they leave home. Not all stories about fishing are fanciful or fabulous. Many are based on pure reason, hard-fought facts, if not the noble pursuit of provable, demonstrable truth. Ask any person who goes fishing. It's not all about the black arts or metaphysical intuition. Any fool knows there's a real science in fishing, and in fact there are countless brainiacs at this very moment sorting through their data and calibrating their variables right up there in Algonquin Park at one of the many fine fish labs. Why, a fella can't go fishing up there without one of those scientists sneaking up on you, tapping you on the shoulder, and meekly asking to examine the guts of your latest catch, if only to see what kind of fly they have been dining out on. So it stands to reason our very own Mr. Leacock became well aware of the exacting scientific nature of fishing. Personal Experiments with the Black Bass it was my good fortune to spend a large part of the summer just past in fishing for bass. The season may be regarded as now definitely closed, and the time is appropriate for a scientific summarizing of the results achieved and the information gained. My experiments are entitled to all the greater weight inasmuch as a large part of them were conducted in the immediate presence of so well-known a man as Mr. John Council of Hamilton, Ontario, who acted as my assistant. Mr. Council very kindly permits me to say that all statements, measurements, and estimates of weight contained in the following discussion are personally vouched for by him. He has even offered to lend his oath, or any number of his oaths, to the accuracy of my statement, but it has been thought wiser not to use Mr. Council's oaths in print. I take this opportunity in turn to express my high appreciation of the hardihood, the endurance, and the quiet courage manifested by my assistant throughout our experiments. If Mr. Council was ever afraid of a bass, I never knew it. I have seen him immersed in mud on the banks of the river where we fished. I have observed him submerged under rapids. I have seen Mr. Council fall from the top of rocks into water so deep and remain under so long that I was just cranking up our car to go home. And yet I never knew him to hesitate for a moment to attack a black bass at sight and kill it. I can guarantee to anybody who is hesitating whether or not to invite Mr. Council to go fishing that he is a man who may safely be taken anywhere where the bass are and is an adornment to any party of sportsmen. 
I turn, therefore, with added confidence to the tabulated results drawn by myself and Mr. Council from our experiments. In the first place, we are able to throw much light on the vexed question as to the circumstances under which the bass bite. There has been a persistent belief that during the glare of the middle part of the day, the bass do not bite. This belief is correct. They do not. It is also true that in the sunnier part of the morning itself, the black bass do not or does not bite. Nor do they, or rather does it, bite during the more drowsy part of the afternoon. Let the angler, therefore, on a day when the sun is bright in the cloudless sky, lay aside his rod from eight in the morning till six in the afternoon. On such a day as this, the fish do not bite. The experienced angler knows this. He selects a suitable tree, lies down beneath it, and waits. Nor do the bass, oddly enough, bite on a cloudy day. The bass dislike clouds. Very often, the appearance of a single cloud on the horizon is a sign for the experienced angler to retire to a quiet spot upon the bank and wait till the cloud goes by. It has been said that the bass bite well in the rain. This is also an error. They do not. Another popular error that ought, in the interests of the young angler, to be dispelled is that the bass bite in the evening. That is not so. The bass loves the day, and at the first sign of darkness, it sinks to the bottom of the water from which it obstinately refuses to move. I am well aware that the young angler might find himself seriously discouraged at what has just been said. What then, he might ask, do the bass never bite at all? Is it never possible to get a bite from them? To this I answer very positively that they both do, and it is. The results, in fine, of the experiments carried on by Mr. Council and myself lead us to the conclusion that the bass bites at midnight. We offer this only as a preliminary hypothesis, for which perhaps a more ample verification will be found in the ensuing season. We ourselves have never fished till midnight, and we observe that even the most persistent angler, as the darkness gathers round him, becomes discouraged, and at some time before midnight, quits. Here he is in error. Our advice to the angler in all such cases is to keep on until midnight. The black bass, which is cherry of biting in the glare of the day, and which dislikes the cool of the evening, must, we argue, be just in the mood needed at midnight. Nor let the young angler run away with the idea that the black bass never bites in the daytime. If he, the young angler, does this, he must be hauled in again on the reel of actual experience. They do, and they have. I recall in particular one case in point in the experiments of Mr. Council and myself. At the time of which I speak, we were fishing from a rocky ledge at the edge of the river that was the scene of our operations. The circumstances were most propitious. The hour was just before daylight so that there was still an agreeable sense of chilliness in the air. It was raining heavily as we took our places on the rock. Much of this rain, though not all of it, had got down our shirts. There had been a certain amount of lightning, two cracks of which had hit Mr. Council in the neck. In short, the surroundings were all that the most ardent fisherman could desire. For a moment, the rain cleared. A first beam of sunlight appeared through the woods on the bank, and at that very moment, Mr. Council called to me that he had a bite. I immediately dropped my rod into the river and urged Mr. Council to avoid all excitement, to keep as calm as possible and to maintain his hold on the line. Mr. Council, in turn, exhorted me to be cool and assured me of his absolute readiness should the fish bite again to take whatever action the circumstances might seem to us to warrant. I asked him in the meantime whether he was prepared to give me an idea of the dimensions of the fish which had bitten him. He assured me that he could, and to my great delight, informed me that the fish was at least three feet long. 
The reader may imagine then with what suppressed excitement Mr. Counsel and I waited for this monster to return and bite again, nor had we long to wait. Not more than two or three minutes had elapsed when I suddenly saw my assistant's line in violent commotion, Mr. Counsel exerting his whole strength in a magnificent combat with the fish. I called to Mr. Counsel to be cautious and adjured him to the utmost calmness by running up and down on the bank and waving my arms to emphasize what I said. But there was no need for such an exhortation. Mr. Counsel had settled down to one of those steady fights with the black bass, which are the proudest moments in the angler's life. The line was now drawn absolutely taut and motionless. Mr. Counsel was exerting his full strength at one end, and the fish, apparently lying at a point of vantage at the very bottom of the river, was exerting its full strength at the other. But here intervened one of those disappointments which the angler must learn to bear as best he may. The bass is nothing if not cunning, and an older, larger fish of the extraordinary size and mass of the one in question shows often an almost incredible strategy in escaping from the hook. After a few moments of hard strain, my assistant suddenly became aware that the fish had left his hook, and at the very moment of escaping had contrived to fasten the hook deep into a log at the bottom of the river. Investigation with a pike pole showed this to be the case. This trick on the part of the bass is, of course, familiar to all experienced anglers. It was fortunate in this case that Mr. Counsel had contrived to get an accurate estimate of the size of the fish before it escaped. The young angler may well ask how it is that we are able to know the size of a fish as soon as it bites without even the slightest glimpse of it. To this, I can merely answer that we do know. It is, I suppose, an instinct. The young angler will get it himself if he goes on fishing long enough. Nor need it be supposed that there is anything unusual or out of the way in the means of escape adopted by the particular bass in question. Indeed, I have on various occasions known the bass not merely to contrive to pass the hook into a log, but even after it has been firmly hooked to substitute a smaller fish than itself. I recall in particular one occasion when Mr. Counsel called to me that he had a fish. I ran to his side at once, encouraging and exhorting him as I did so. In this instance, the fish came towards the top of the water with a rush. We were both able to distinguish it clearly as it moved below the surface. It was a magnificent black bass measuring 17 inches from its face to its tail and weighing four and a half pounds. The gleam of its scales as it shot through the foaming water is a sight I shall not readily forget. The fish dived low. Meantime, Mr. Counsel had braced himself so as to exert his full strength, and I placed myself behind him with my arms around his body to prevent the fish from dragging him into the stream. By this strategy, the fish was thrown clear up onto the rock where Mr. Counsel attacked it at once and beat the breath out of it with a boat hook. But judge of our surprise when we found that the fish landed was not the fish originally caught on the hook. The bass had contrived in its downward plunge to free itself from the hook and to replace itself by a yellow perch six inches long. From what has been said above, it is only too clear that the life of the black bass fisherman has its disappointments and hardships. The black bass is wary and elusive, more crafty, for example, than the lobster, and a gamer fighter than the sardine. The angler must face danger and discomfort. He gets rained upon, he falls into the river, he gets struck by lightning. But for myself, when the ice of the winter is cleared away and the new season opens up, 
I ask no better fate than to be out again at daybreak with Mr. Council sitting on a rock beside the river with the rain soaking into our shirts, waiting for a bite. Whatever the joys or horrors of pursuing a fish in their natural habitat, there has always been one surefire way of making that pursuit a lot less arduous. I am speaking now of that not infrequent occurrence taken up by the wealthy among us, that of making their very own fish pond. Yes, it is done in these parts as well. But least you think it's a surefire way for any rich fool to catch a fish, listen carefully as Mr. Leacock spins our final fishy tale. My fishing pond. It lies embowered in a little cup of the hills, my fishing pond. I made it last trip to it just as the season ended, when the autumn leaves of its great trees were turning color and rustling down to rest upon the still black water. So steep are the banks, so old and high the trees, that scarcely a puff of wind ever ruffles the surface of the pond. All around it, it is as if the world was stilled into silence and time blended into eternity. I realized again as I looked at the pond what a beautiful secluded spot it was. How natural its appeal to the heart of the angler. You turn off a country road, go sideways across a meadow and over a hill, and there it lies. A sheet of still water with high, high banks grown with great trees. Long years ago, someone built a sawmill, all gone now at the foot of the valley, and threw back the water to make a pond, perhaps a quarter of a mile long. At the widest, it must be nearly 200 feet. The most skilled fisherman may make a full cast both ways. At the top end, where it runs narrow among stumps and rushes, there is no room to cast except with direction and great skill. Let me say at once, so as to keep no mystery about it, that there are no fish in my pond. So far as I know, there never have been, but I have never found that to make any difference. Certainly none to the men I bring here, my chance visitors from the outside world for an afternoon of casting. If there are no fish in the pond, at least they never know it. They never doubt it, they never ask, and I let it go at that. It is well known hereabouts that I do not take anybody and everybody out to my fish pond. I only care to invite people who can really fish, who can cast a line, experts, and especially people from a distance to whom the whole neighborhood is new and attractive, the pond seen for the first time. If I took out ordinary men, especially men near home, they would very likely notice that they got no fish. The expert doesn't. He knows trout fishing too well. He knows that even in a really fine pond, such as he sees mine is, there are days when not a trout will rise. He'll explain it to you himself, and after having explained it, he is all the better pleased if he turns out to be right and they don't rise. Trout, as everyone knows who is an angler, never rise after a rain, nor before one. It is impossible to get them to rise in the heat, and any chill in the air keeps them down. The absolutely right day is a still, cloudy day, but even then there are certain kinds of clouds that prevent a rising of the trout. Indeed, I have only to say to one of my expert friends, queer they didn't bite, and he's off to a good start with an explanation. There is such a tremendous lot to know about trout fishing that men who are keen on it can discuss theories of fishing by the hour. Such theories we generally talk over, my guest of the occasion and I, as we make our preparations at the pond. You see, I keep there all the apparatus that goes with fishing. A punt with lockers in the sides of it, a neat little dock built out of cedar, because cedar attracts the trout, and best of all, a little shelter house, a quaint little place like a pagoda, 
close to the water and yet under the trees. Inside is tackle, all sorts of tackle hanging round the walls in a mixture of carelessness and order. Look, old man, I say, if you'd like to try a running paternoster, take this one. Or have you seen these Japanese leads? No, they're not gut, they're a sort of floss. I doubt if you can land one, he says. Perhaps not, I answer. In fact, I'm sure he couldn't. There isn't any to land. On pegs in the pagoda hangs a waterproof Macintosh or two, for you never know, you may be caught in a shower just when the trout are starting to rise. With that, of course, a sort of cellarette cupboard with decanters and bottles and ginger snaps and perhaps an odd pot of anchovy paste, no one wants to quit fishing for mere hunger. Nor does any real angler care to begin fishing without taking just a drop, just a touch, be careful, whoa, whoa, of something to keep out the cold or to wish good luck for the chances of the day. I always find when I bring out one of my friends that these preparatives or preparations, these preliminaries of angling are the best part of it. Often they take half an hour. There is so much to discuss. The question of weights of tackle, the color of the fly to use, and broad general questions of theory, such as whether it matters what kind of hat a man wears. It seems that trout will rise for some hats and not for others. One of my best guests, who has written a whole book on fly fishing, is particularly strong on hats and color. Ooh, I don't think I'd wear that hat, old man, he says. Much too dark for a day like this. I wore it all last month, I said. So you might, old man, but that was August. I wouldn't wear a dark one in September, and that tie is too dark a blue, old man. So I knew that that made it all right. I kept the hat on. We had a, good, a great afternoon. We got no fish. I admit that the lack of fish in my pond requires sometimes a little tact in management. The guest gets a little restless, so I say to him, you certainly have the knack of casting, and he gets so absorbed in casting further and further that he forgets the fish. Or I take him towards the upper end and he gets his line caught on bulrushes that might be a bite. Or if he still keeps restless, I say, suddenly, hush, was that a fish jumped? That will silence any true angler instantly. You stand in the bow, I whisper, and I'll gently paddle in that direction. It's the whispering that does it. We are still a hundred yards away from any trout that could hear us, even if a trout was there, but that makes no difference. Some of the men I take out begin to whisper a mile away from the pond, and they come home whispering. You see, after all, what with frogs jumping and catching the line in bulrushes, or pulling up a waterlogged chip nearly to the top, they really don't know, my guests don't, whether they've hooked something or not. Indeed, after a little lapse of time, they think they did. They talk of the big one that I lost, a thing over which any angler gets sentimental in retrospect. Do you remember, they say to me months later at the club in the city, that big trout I lost up on your fish pond last summer? Indeed I do, I say. Did you ever get him later on? Nope, never, I answer. In fact, I'm darn sure I didn't, neither him nor any other. Yet the illusion holds good. And besides, you never can tell. There might be trout in the pond. Why not? After all, why shouldn't there be a trout in the pond? You take a pond like that, and there ought to be trout in it. Whenever the sight of the pond bursts on the eyes of a new guest, he stands entranced. What a wonderful place for trout, he exclaims. Isn't it? I answer. No wonder you'd get trout in a pond like that. No wonder at all. You don't need to stock it, I suppose. Stock it? I laugh at the idea. Stock a pond like that? Well, I guess not. 
Perhaps one of the best and most alluring touches is fishing out of season. Just a day or two after the season has closed, any fisherman knows how keen is the regret at each expiring term, swallowed up and lost in the glory of the fading autumn. So if a guest turns up just then, I say, I know it's out of season, but I thought you might care to take a run out to the pond anyway and have a look at it. He can't resist. By the time he's in the pagoda and has a couple of small drinks, careful, not too much, whoa, whoa, he decides that there could be no harm in making a cast or two. I suppose, he says, you never have any trouble with the inspectors? Oh no, I answer, they never think of troubling me. And with that, we settle down to an afternoon of it. I'm glad, says the guest at the end, that they weren't rising. After all, we had just as much fun as if they were. That's it. Illusion. How much of life is like that? It's the idea of the thing that counts, not the reality. You don't need fish for fishing any more than you need a partridge for partridge shooting or gold for gold mining, just the illusion or expectation. So I'm going back to the city now and to my club where we shall fish all winter, hooking up the big ones but losing the ones bigger still, hooking two trout at one throw, three at a throw, and for me behind it all, the memory of my fishing pond darkening under the falling leaves. At least it has made my friends happy. And so that brings us to our end tonight. I hope you enjoyed our seven tales drawn from the literary imagination of Canada's very own Stephen Leacock. And if you take home anything tonight, remember that Stephen Leacock loved talking about fish, fishing, and especially people who like to go fishing, more than even those who actually caught a fish. I'm Karen Filipkowski, and on behalf of Mark Wormke and our producer Barry Conway, we thank you for coming out tonight. And don't forget, if you like what you heard, you can always show your appreciation by dropping something into Philip, the donation jar. The station keepers in this old station will very much appreciate it. Otherwise, for all of us at the Apiongo Readers Theatre and our five local public libraries in Barry's Bay, Killaloo, Madawaska, Maynooth, and Whitney, we bid you good night and good luck.